Let me lead us in prayer. Gracious, loving Father, we are so thankful that you speak to us. Thank you that you have written the word of God and that we now have the privilege to hear you speak and to understand what you have done in your world and what you continue to do. Please lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for my grandparents, the ultimate meal was roast lamb and vegetables with gravy, followed by apple crumble with custard. Still sounds pretty good, though, doesn't it? (laughs) But then we as a nation sort of stretched out a little bit, and uh, we had some fancy food. When we'd go down to the bowler, we'd get some Chinese. I thought we were really lashing out. Since then, as multiculturalism has had its swept its wave over Australia, uh, we now enjoy Mexican and Vietnamese, Middle Eastern, Indian, uh, often all on the same plate. Uh, we have a really multicultural ta- palette now, really, in so many ways. But even though we've developed so much, there are still foods around that I find hard to eat. Uh, And if you want to see a most extreme example of that, there's a scene in an Indiana Jones movie from 30 years ago, you might remember, where there was a picture of, where there was a scene where there was a a delicacies included baby snakes, monkey's brains, beetle backs, and eyeball soup. I wonder if you can remember the scene. Uh, There's a man uh, getting into the monkey head. Our tastes have widened a great deal, but not that far just yet. I'll move that slide on for you. <laughs> but what was so confronting about that particular scene was not so much that they had to eat so much gross food. It was the fact that by eating it or not eating it, it showed that they had an affinity, a, con- a connection with the people who were serving the food. They serve up this beautiful food of weird steaks that are alive and all this sort of stuff. And if they say, oh, I won't eat it, yuck, it actually says... We are not in fellowship with each other. There's a lot that happens when you refuse a meal that's been served up to you. Now, the reason that we find those meals hard to eat, and not only because we've never really eaten them before, um, but we, we, we do that because we've been told that you just don't eat snakes and you don't eat eyeballs and things like that. But imagine if church had told you since you were a little pup that it is wrong, that it is, it is sinful to eat those kinds of foods, that to eat these unclean meals was actually something that would impair your relationship with God in some sort of way. Well, that is the situation for God's people in the Old Testament. They were told to go stay right away from all that kind of stuff, not only because it may have turned their stomachs, but more because it turned God's stomach. And so they were not to do that because it was a a way of them showing that they obeyed God. So they wouldn't eat bacon and they wouldn't eat prawns and they wouldn't eat prawns with bacon. They wouldn't do that, but they also wouldn't go into the house of somebody who did. There was a real barrier there. And so an Orthodox Jew would not go into the house of a Gentile because to do so was to bring together clean and unclean in a way that would displease God. So here's the problem. Jesus has said that his gospel is going to go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Inevitably, along the way, they're going to come across some people who are not Jews. What do they do about it? Well, the challenge today is we will see that Jewish believers will need to cross cultures. They'll need to go across to the other culture and get their heads around what that really means for them on the ground. 
But how do they do that? How do they visit the homes of Gentiles? How do they eat the food of Gentiles? Well, this is the issue before us as we look at some remarkable events in the life of Peter the Apostle. The believers have spread out from the epicenter of the Holy Spirit, from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria, and as they go out further, so are the believers. And we see here that the Apostle Peter has gone out from there. And so verse 32, where our passage begins in chapter 9, we read that Peter travelled from place to place and he came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. Now, Lydda is about two-thirds of the way between Jerusalem and modern-day Tel Aviv. It's kind of just south of where the Tel Aviv airport is. And in that particular spot, a bit of a distance away from Jerusalem, Peter is there and he meets the believers there, those who are followers of Jesus. And something happens there, verse 33, that he met there a, name, a man named Aeneas, who had been paralysed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Almost coincidentally, this week when I was teaching scripture class, it was the story of Jesus who went through the sheep gate into the pool of Bethesda. And right at that spot, there was a man who for 38 years could not walk. And every time the, the waters bubbled up, it was his opportunity to jump on in and get healed. But he couldn't because he couldn't walk. And Jesus turned to the man and said, get up, take up your mat and walk. It's almost the same situation here. Almost word for word. And Peter doesn't take the glory. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And he says the words that Jesus would have said right at that point, making it very clear that it is Jesus who heals at this point. Jesus heals. And we've got to realise that in these early moments of the early church, it's as though Jesus is physically there with them. Jesus is doing the healing Jesus is doing these miracles. It's another one of those things that sets apart the moments of Acts that are different from today. Sure, Jesus is present amongst us by his Holy Spirit today, but in a sort of a supercharged way, he was there and doing these things just like when he was walking around. And as a result of this, we see in verse 35 that the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around and they turned to the Lord. They were blown away by this man who was completely unable to... I don't know why he couldn't walk. Maybe he had suffered a terrible injury and, we, and everybody knew it. His legs were crushed. He's paralyzed, maybe broken his back and could not get out of bed to save himself. And yet Jesus, through Peter, brought him healing and now he's walking around. It's like, aren't you the guy who... Wow! But then after that, we see another person who is sick in a place called Joppa. Now, Joppa is known today as Jaffa or Yafo. It's, it's just at the very, very bottom of Tel Aviv. And so you've got Jerusalem, then you've got where we were with Lydda, and then across, right on the coast was Jaffa. Now, Jaffa was a seaport. Uh, when they brought all of the logs down from Lebanon into Jerusalem, they went and they brought them into the seaport at Jaffa. And uh, a little bit of a fun fact, the reason that we roll Jaffas down the aisle 
is because the oranges were originally made, were originally grown in Israel, and they came from the port of Jaffa. There you go. Things you learn. But there are other things to learn about Jaffa, which we'll learn in a moment. But have a look at see what happens here. Verse 36, that there was a believer in Joppa, Jaffa, named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. Uh, This is sad. It's always sad when someone passes away, but Tabitha just has this reputation for being so kind and so generous. And they're sad about this, obviously. And they now prepare her body for burial. It's not kind of like, she's really sick, let's call for a doctor. It's like, no, we, we are calling this. She has passed away, time of death is, and let's get in the funeral director's. But some believers had a supernatural faith. And so in verse 38, we read that the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda and they knew what happened with Aeneas. So they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. And so Peter returned with them. And as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes Dorcas had made for them. It's, it's beautiful and it's also sad because here is this woman, Dorcas, Lydia, who, who, um, who was, Tabitha, sorry, who had been so kind to those who were in the greatest need. She made these garments for the widows who were unable to support themselves. And they were testifying to her love, her generosity, for her kindness. And now they are weeping as they say, we loved her. Look at, what, look at how she loved us. They thought that she was dead. But Peter didn't come to comfort them. Verse 40. Peter asked them all to leave the room and then he knelt and prayed, turning to the body, not to her, to the body. It's interesting, isn't it? To the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. Bing. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. And then he called in the widows and all the believers and presented her to them alive. That would be quite a day, wouldn't it? (laughs) What an extraordinary event. That is what has happened here. It's another amazing healing. And it reminds us of when Jesus said to the little girl, not Tabitha, but Talitha, little girl, get up. It's almost, as one commentator said, if it was, you could just change one letter and it's exactly what Jesus said, but to a different person. Tabitha, Talitha. Peter heals this woman as though it's actually Jesus healing the woman in this extraordinary time in the history of the church. And the people were amazed. Verse 42, the news spread through the whole town and many believed in the Lord. Of course they did. This healing by Jesus made believers and lots of them. And it seems that Peter stayed around in that same town as Tabitha for quite some time. Verse 43. We read that Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. Now, Joppa is a famous place in the history of God's people, more than just for making us Jaffas. Uh, It was this major seaport, but it was also famous for another part of the Bible. There was a particular bloke called Jonah. You might have heard of him before. God said, I'd like you to go off and speak to all of these non-Jews, tell them to repent and then I will save the lot of them. 
And Jonah, well, he wasn't a big fan of that idea. So he got on a boat where? At Joppa. Sailed into the Mediterranean Sea. And then, well, things did quite didn't go to plan for him. Involved being swallowed up by a whale and things like that. You've read the story before. If you haven't, it's a great read. But he's a man who was told by the Lord to go to the Gentiles. And he said, no. What's going to happen here? Well, there's another thing that's interesting about this particular verse, and that is that Peter, who is an Orthodox Jew, who's now a believer in Jesus, is living with a guy who tans hides for a living. He makes leather out of dead animals. So what? Well, so what? If you were a person who loved God, you didn't go anywhere near a dead body, a dead anything. And yet he's now living with a guy who is actually spending his life, has his livelihood from touching dead things. Now, is God sort of subtly sort of defrosting Peter a little bit to get him ready for the mission? I think that's likely. Anyway, why do we need to know all of this? Well, hold those thoughts in mind. We switch chapters and we change scenes. Because now we go in chapter 10, verse 1, to meet about this guy called in Caesarea. Because in Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. Uh, Caesarea is a fascinating place. It's about 50 kilometres north of Joppa, Jaffa. And it's called Caesarea because it's named after Caesar. It's a, it's a little Roman, well, rather large Roman port, a spectacular Roman port. And you, the ruins are fascinating today. And there they are in very much Roman land, non-Jewish land. And they lived there, a Roman army officer. This, this guy is a non-Jew. He's a Gentile. The scene has changed. And we read in this section here that Cornelius, in fact, was a powerful, but also a religious Gentile. Verse 2, we read that he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. We're not told a lot about what he believes. A little bit later on, he's going to have a conversion experience, but already we can read that he's actually a God-fearing, devout man. It's quite interesting. And he gives generously to the poor, which is great. But then something very strange happens, verse 3. One afternoon about 3 o'clock, which is the prayer time, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. And Cornelius stared at him in terror. This is a guy who runs an army of hundreds of soldiers, and yet he is terrified. And he says, what is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Interesting, isn't it? It's an unusual response to prayers to have a vision from God like that. But he has been told by God that God has seen his heart and his passion to come to God in some sort of way. And then he gives him some specific orders. We read in verse 5 that God says, Send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. The two plots are about to collide. What we see here is that the angel tells Cornelius to go and get Peter. 
Well, verse 7, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened. You're never going to believe it. And he sent them off to Joppa, which is about 50 kilometres south of where they were, heading down the coast. And as they head off, the action switches back to Joppa. Because we read in verse 9 that the next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. You know, maybe his blood sugar levels got very, very low, quite possibly. But he saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. It's like the scene out of Indiana Jones. And he's on the roof and he's really, really hungry. What is going to happen? Well, right at that moment, even though he's hungry, he's seen these gross animals and he's probably lost his appetite. But the voice says to him, verse 13, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. <laughs> it's like, really? No, here the Lord challenges Peter to eat unclean food. It's like, what on earth is happening? Why would the Lord send me to eat snakes and prawns and pork and all this stuff? Peter's initial response in verse 14, he says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. I mean, even though he's living in the same house as a guy who touches dead animals for a living, he still won't eat the Gentile food. And he's keen about that. What is he going to do at that point? Well, verse 15, the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And the same vision was repeated three times, just in case he was a bit slow. And then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven and Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? And just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. What is going to happen? Well, verse 19, Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, and still his stomach's turning, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night, and the next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. Last time something like that happened in Joppa, the guy got on a boat and fled. This time, when God says, Go to the Gentile, he obeys. It's a completely different turn of events. But we see that Peter obeys the Lord and he willingly travels to the Gentile. And he goes on this 50-kilometre journey, which would have taken two days. And in verse 24, we read that they arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. Ah, well, maybe Cornelius has got his wires crossed. Maybe he didn't quite know why the Lord sent Peter to come, so he worships him. But that's a bad idea. Verse 26, Peter pulls him up and says, Stand up, get off your feet. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Uh, Peter says to Cornelius, Listen, don't worship me, but I've got something that is going to shake your world. And what's more, this whole thing, uh, me being a Jew and you being a non-Jew, is weird. It's weird for me. It'd be weird for you. Trust me. But this is what's happening. Verse 28. You know it is against our Jewish laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this. Don't take offence. Nice home, but just what the laws say. And it's an offence to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. (laughs) Why did you want me? This is a weird situation with a Jew walking into the house of a Gentile. Everything's weird. And then Cornelius explains why it's happened. Verse 33, he explains it and then he says, So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. And now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. I skipped over a few verses there and got straight to the punchline. They are waiting to hear the message of the Lord. Cornelius is hungry for the gospel. In the same way that Peter was hungry for lunch as he fell into that trance on the roof, Cornelius is now hungry to hear the good news that Peter is going to bring him. It's an evangelist's dream for someone to sort of come and knock on my door and say, you're the minister here in Jamboree? Yes. I need you to come to my house and tell my whole family and all the people I work with and the next door neighbours the message that you've got. Cool. (laughs) It's a good day at the office. And then Peter responds. And he gives them a mini sermon. It's a little bit like what he said on the steps of the temple on that first Pentecost. And it's got a bit that overlaps with some of the things that Stephen said also prior to him being stoned to death. Let me read it out to you in full from verse 34 to 43 without too much comment. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us, whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living 
and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. It's a great little summary of the message of Jesus. The connection with what John the Baptist did. Then Jesus came along and then they killed Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to the apostles and said, go out and tell people about me and here he is. And he gives this whole summary here and he makes this key point at the end. He says, everyone who believes in Jesus will have their sins forgiven through his name. That is what Cornelius was waiting for. He was a man who was devout. He, he worshipped God. He did what he could to find favour with God. But in the end, the way that he would find forgiveness with God was by believing in Jesus, the one about whom they heard from Peter. And even at the end of this sermon, we read verse 44, as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And then Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptised now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we Jews did? So he gave orders for them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. What do we have here? Is this what normally happens when someone becomes a Christian? That all of these weird stuff out of tongues and... No. This is a very special event. It's just like what? It's just like Pentecost. Did you see that? It's another Pentecost-like experience. Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit into Jerusalem. Bam, he did that. And then the next stage was to Samaria and to, to Galilee. Uh, so Samaria and, and, and to Judea. Done. And the next step is to the ends of the earth. Done. And in each of these three phases, we see a Pentecost-like experience. It's a very special event in history. And it's not to be repeated. This is a moment when the Holy Spirit came down in a high-impact way. And Cornelius, the non-Jew, now becomes a follower of Jesus and he gets baptised along with everyone in his household. See, the, the gospel of Jesus wasn't going to go to the Gentiles without something special happening, and it did. And you'd think everyone would be excited beyond belief. Well, verse 1 of chapter 11. Soon the news reached the apostles and the other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Wow. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, back to head office, the Jewish believers criticised him. You entered the home of Gentiles and ate with them, they said. I mean, yes, it's, this was such a big taboo. And so these Jewish believers criticised Peter. They criticised what he did. They criticised his lack of judgment. What on earth would lead you to go into the house of a Gentile and to eat with them? Are you crazy? Have you forgotten everything you grew up learning? What's gone wrong? 
And then at that point, from verses 4 through to 14, Peter explains it all. I'm not going to read it out. You can read it yourself. But it's interesting that as Luke was writing these histories of the, of, the, of the early stages of the church, he decided he really wanted us to get this clear in our head. So he repeated it in full again as they're reading these words, as they're hearing these words read to them. Here is the whole thing again. And he ends in verse 15 saying that as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us in the beginning. It's like, guys, it was just like on the steps of the temple. Wow. And clearly this was a major Holy Spirit event again. And it led Peter to reflect on what Jesus taught about baptism. Verse 16, he thought of the words of the Lord when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Fair point. God did to them what he did to us. What am I, what do I do? Say, not valid or I don't believe. It was the Holy Spirit as, as plain as the nose of my face. And at that point, it was very, very clear to Peter that Gentiles are now equal with Jews. Gentiles are now equal with Jews. This great barrier between Jew and Gentile is now removed. Now, how are they going to respond to that? Anything could happen. But the news is good. Verse 18. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. They had the same aha moment. It's like, ah, right, we get it. The Gentiles are now with us. And see what they, how they describe it, though. We can see that God has given the Gentiles the privilege, the gift of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. It's quite an amazing thing to think of repentance as a gift. You might, you might think of receiving eternal life, of grace as being the gift, not the repentance. But I reflected upon this this week, that the, the ability to come to someone and say, I am sorry, and for them to hear that apology and, then, uh, and, and not say, get out, uh, that is actually a gift. And then when there is reconciliation that comes from that, uh, th that is a, a wonderful experience. This is the gift, the privilege that these people, the Gentiles, have received. And it is such a privilege. It is a privilege to repent. It is a gift to repent. Uh, the, our translation we're using, the New Living Translation, translates the word gift or giving as privilege. Other translations use different words like just gift or giving or the, the privilege. And It doesn't use the word privilege, but I really like this translation because I think it really, it, as you look at the word and the way it's translated in different ways, it just seems to capture the fact that it is such a remarkable privilege to have that wonderful gift, that gracious gift that we don't deserve to be able to repent. And that is true for us. When we repent... We have a gift. And when Jesus forgives, we have a gift. 
And that was sort of where I was thinking of closing this sermon. But then I was reflecting upon it and I went to sleep one night and I woke up the next morning and this was on my mind and the Bible passage has been spinning around and, and something came to me. I thought, I reckon I know how I'm going to land this sermon. And that is that in both of these situations, whether it's Peter or whether it's Cornelius, we have men who are very powerful. Peter is the most powerful man in the church, so to speak. And Cornelius, he had hundreds of soldiers working for him. And in both situations, we see that there were powerful men who repented. And the reminder for us, I think, is that powerful people still need to repent. You know, in some ways, when you are down and out and everything's been taken away from you, when God says to you, come and follow me, it's like, well, what, what have I got to lose? I'll scrape myself off the ground. I've got nothing. But when you are in a position of power, when you've got access to thousands, to hundreds of thousands of dollars at your fingertips to get yourself out of a pickle, when you have got resources in terms of people, friends, phone numbers in your phone that you can call and at a drop of the hat they will help you, people you work with, people you've influenced, people you're in networks with, do you really need God? When you are that powerful, do you really need God? Well, the sin, this guy Cornelius didn't really need God. He had a great job. He had great power, great influence. But when Peter turned up at his doorstep, he got down on his knees. He recognised he needed to worship God and he met Jesus. And I think it's a reminder to us all that no matter how powerful you are, how wealthy you are, how safe you are, we all need to come to Jesus because what is in Christ is better by far. This world will say to us, Following Jesus, well, it's a bit of a cop-out. It's not as good. Why don't you just get the good stuff of life? But the world has got it wrong. The same thing that brought Cornelius to his knees, this powerful man, is the same thing that needs to keep bringing us to our knees, knowing that we have the privilege of repenting of our sins and receiving eternal life. Let me pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, so much that you highlighted to the, the Apostle Peter that now the Gentiles were included within the faith. And we thank you, Father, for that because we ourselves are Gentiles here today in Jerusalem, in, in the Jamboree, far, far away from Jerusalem. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege it is to witness the transforming power of your Holy Spirit in the life of Cornelius and his whole household. And we pray that we too would acknowledge afresh your wonderful grace and glory and that no matter how secure we may have in our assets and in our life, we know that all of it is nothing except for knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.